You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Do something, family members often plead when they witness the refusal of food and fluid by a loved one diagnosed with advanced dementia. What is the right thing to do? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Thomas E. Fanukin, Professor of Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Co-Director of the Elder House Call Program at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center, and lead author of the May 2007 article in the Journal of the American Medical Directors Association titled, Tube Feeding and Dementia, How Incentives Undermine Healthcare Quality and Patient Safety. Dr. Fanukin, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Good morning, Susan. Give us a feeding tube history lesson. Feeding tubes were, until about 1980, a surgical procedure. It required operating room time, an incision in the abdominal wall, and a gastrointestinal surgery. Just around 1980, a group of physicians developed a method where you could use an endoscope And with little more risk than just having a plain old upper endoscopy, you could introduce a tube into the stomach through the abdominal wall just by a puncture maneuver. No surgery involved, no mechanical ventilation, awaken, speaking again within an hour or two. This has now been developed further where the interventional radiologists can do this under fluoroscopy. And when that happened, the equation changed completely. If you had a very elderly relative who was in the late stages of dementia and was eating and drinking little, in 1975, family members would get together. We would try hard to feed this patient careful, loving spoon feeding and an acceptance that this was the the end of a long, fatal illness. In 1975, again, if we were taking care of grandma in this way, the idea that we would take her to the operating room, open her abdomen, and place a feeding tube was simply disproportionate. No one considered it or proposed it, and and very rarely was it done. If you fast forward to 2005, it's become an easy procedure. There's grandma. Everybody's busy. We don't really have time to feed her. Why don't we just slap that feeding tube in and pour calories, protein, and fluid into her so that bad things don't happen to her? The advent of a non-invasive way to feed a patient with advanced dementia has really led to an explosion in the artificial feeding of patients with dementia. How do you respond to family members and professionals who say if the patient coughs when fed and later gets aspiration pneumonia, tube feeding can circumvent most mealtime aspiration? That is a very complex question. If you think about it, perhaps a liter or two of, in a normal person, a liter or two of saliva and food has to get from your mouth into your stomach without going into the lungs. It's a miracle that that happens so effectively. But it turns out that no person, however healthy, is perfect at keeping everything in the mouth out of the lungs. If you do studies of medical students, for example, presumably normal brain, normal larynx and pharynx, normal swallowing reflex, you can show that in one night the majority of them have actually taken some saliva into their lungs. And many people, when they're coughing as they wake up, probably are clearing their lungs of some saliva that has entered into the airways rather than going down the esophagus into the stomach. This is a constant problem, and it's only the most apparent when you're eating and drinking. 
So if you have a patient who is coughing when they're fed, you can be sure that at other times of the day when they're not being fed, they're also unable to protect their airway. Here is a simple experiment to ask yourself, uh, how common is it for people to have something in the pharynx go into the lungs instead of into the stomach? Ask yourself whether you have ever coughed when you were drinking a, a liquid. And the answer is that is a 100% universal phenomenon. You shouldn't worry about that if that's happened to you because it happens to everybody. The problem is if you're in a nursing home and you're eating or drinking and you cough, then if you're in the wrong nursing home, somebody's going to say, well, we better put a feeding tube in that patient. There are two important things to think about. Number one, the thing that causes aspiration pneumonia is either very contaminated oral secretions that get into the lungs instead of being swallowed. And number two, the regurgitation of gastric contents, which then get into the lung and cause an inflammatory response. So if you say to yourself, aspiration pneumonia is caused by the aspiration of contaminated mouth flora or the contents of the stomach that's been regurgitated, then you'd say to yourself, well, is there any reason a priori to believe that putting in a feeding tube would reduce the risk of either of those? And the answer, of course, is no. There are complicated scientific reasons to think that it probably increases the risk of both of those problems, oral contents or gastric contents entering the lungs. But certainly there's no reason to think that you would prevent it. And the short evidence-based answer is no study ever published, and there have been dozens of studies, has ever shown any reduction in the risk of pneumonia in demented patients who get a feeding tube. Many, many studies done, none of them has ever shown any reduction in the risk of pneumonia. Does tube feeding reduce infection? The simple answer to that is no. If you look at a patient with advanced dementia who's living in a nursing home, the common infections would be skin, lungs, urine, and then a variety of viral infections. Those would be the most common. None of them has ever been shown to be reduced by placing a feeding tube. The other side of the question is, could you make things worse? And the answer is yes. If you have a patient living in a contaminated environment and you introduce a new hole through the skin, abdominal musculature, peritoneum, and stomach wall, a variety of infections, some of them fatal, have been caused by doing that. If you then drip nutrient-rich mixture in at room temperature over hours in a contaminated environment, you can introduce wicked infections by that route as well. And both of these routes of infection have been well described in the literature. So no evidence that you can reduce the risk of infection and plenty of evidence that you can create infections occasionally fatal by putting in a feeding tube. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Thomas Finucane from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine discussing feeding tubes and advanced dementia patients. Dr. Finucane, what are the biggest misconceptions about feeding tubes? I think there are two main ones. The first is, if you look at your dad while he's being fed and he coughs, and then the next day the nursing home calls you up and says your father's in the hospital with pneumonia, that would be a natural human reaction to say, geez, what are you guys doing in that nursing home? But as we've discussed already, there just isn't any reason to believe that you can prevent pneumonia by giving food directly into the stomach. 
And there's not one shred of evidence, not one single published paper that says that you do reduce the risk of pneumonia. The problem is you're looking at dad during the mealtime. He's aspirating all night long. And you can put whatever the feeding mixture is right into his stomach, but you are not protecting his airway for the rest of the, of the 24 hours. The second biggest conception is that you look at your, your loved one in the late stage of dementia, not interested in food or not able to swallow it, losing weight, doing poorly, and you say, geez, dad is starving to death. Wouldn't it just make sense to put a peg in, put in a feeding tube, a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy, and deliver adequate food and water to him so that he doesn't starve to death? There's a very long background to that, but the thing to keep in your mind is that basically no good study has ever shown that you prolong life by putting in a feeding tube. Remember now, we're talking not about a comatose patient, but about a demented patient, a patient with advanced Alzheimer's who is difficult to feed. But that patient by that time in general is very skinny, very inactive in the bed, and not eating very much at all. Before these relatively non-invasive ways to feed people were developed, patients like that lived for years, two or three or four years, eating very small amounts of calories and surviving month after month after month. They don't need many calories when they're completely inactive and have no, no muscle mass to speak of. The worst misconception, and the wor in my opinion, the worst thing that a physician can say to a family is, do you want to starve your father to death or do you want to put in a feeding tube? Because that is not only false and misleading, but it's coercively false and misleading because nobody's going to let their dad starve to death. The cornerstone of the misunderstanding has to do with the idea of malnutrition. We know, for example, that in most cases of advanced cancer, people eat little, they lose weight, their albumin is low, and their death rates are high. And it looks just like malnutrition. You're not eating, you're losing weight, you get sick, and you die. But in advanced cancer and in several other conditions, there's unequivocal evidence that feeding via tubes does not prolong life. These patients are dying of their illness. There's an inflammatory, cachectic, wasting process going on. And simply adding protein and calories to that doesn't help. There are meta-analyses of, of artificial feeding in patients with advanced metastatic lung cancer. For example, several of them, more than a dozen, all of them show the same or worse survival when you add protein and calories to someone who is that sick. How common is advanced care planning for feeding tubes? If you look at the literature, there are several very interesting studies where People whose loved ones have had feeding tubes placed are interviewed. A series of very creative researchers have, have investigated this question. Advanced care planning is extremely unusual. In most cases, the family will say, you know, they, they didn't even present this as an option. They told me it was time to put a feeding tube into my dad. It took about five minutes for them to explain it. They didn't really seek consent, and they presented it as a fait accompli. So... Not only is advanced care planning rare, but planning in real time with the informed consent of the, you know, the substitute decision makers is also rare. If you think of advanced directives, it means the patient looked into the future, foresaw something that might happen to him or her, 
and left guidance about how they wanted to be treated in that instance. Nobody in their wildest dreams ever imagines that they're going to get advanced Alzheimer's disease and get to the place where somebody's talking about a feeding tube. That's just, I think, for the average human being is, is literally inconceivable. And, and people don't plan for that. What is your best advice for discussing feeding tubes with loved ones? Number one is if the physician says to you, we can place this feeding tube or your dad's going to starve to death, you need to seek another physician. Or you need to challenge that physician directly and say, my understanding is life expectancy is not improved by placing this tube. Why do you say it is? Dr. Fanukin, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Susan Dolan, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.